So, I wonder how much you know about music theory. It's a promising opening, isn't it? Uh, maybe you've heard of a particular musical device or technique called a Picardy third. Now, this is when a piece is written in a minor key, but suddenly, on the very last note, it ends in a major key. And what's unique about this device is not the change from minor to major. That's quite common, but normally you have to wander around for a bit, uh, travel through different harmonies. The music has to go through a development. You need to earn that key change. What's striking about the Picardy Third is that it arrives abruptly, with no warning. Nothing in the music signals that we should expect a resolution to a major key, and yet it comes just the same. That's exactly what we have in Numbers 16 this evening. Now, imagine for a moment that this chapter were being made into a film or a Netflix series, and you had been approached to write the soundtrack. What do you think a soundtrack to this chapter would sound like? Probably pretty gloomy, right? All of the death, the betrayal, the doom, the judgment certainly be in a minor key. But how does it end? At the last moment, when all hope seems lost, the people of Israel experience a sudden, unexpected, unearned resolution to the problem of their sin and rebellion. Now, Aaron's work as high priest in this moment, offering an atonement that saves the people from the wrath of God, is the beating heart of the entire Bible. What we have is the gospel uh, in a nutshell here for us tonight. And this is going to be another you-are-what-you-eat moment, because I have a main point. Uh, the main point is only God's appointed priest can save his people. Only God's appointed priest can save his people. I'll divide the passage under three headings, which, true to the free church formulas, all begin with the same letter. Uh, rebellion, repetition, and resolution. But before we can properly understand the rebellion in front of us, we need to understand what was being rebelled against, uh, the tabernacle system, as well as the danger of approaching God. So we're going to go back all the way to Genesis. The Bible begins in Genesis where God creates the world as a meeting place with mankind for to walk with Adam, the man who he created in his image. And the instrument, the tool that God creates with is his word. He says, let there be light, and there is light. Everything happens just as he commands. Now, the serpent tempts Eve by questioning God's word. He asks, did God actually say? And in response, Eve twists and then ultimately breaks God's commands, and she and Adam are expelled from the garden as a result. And God places an angel with a flaming sword at the eastern entrance to the garden so that no one can draw near to the tree of life. But that rebellion begun with Adam and Eve spreads until God sees that the whole earth has become corrupt and filled with violence. So he determines to cleanse it, blotting out all of mankind aside from only Noah and his family. 
God then commands Noah to build an ark, gives him precise measurements for how to build the ark and then fill it. And Noah does as God commands him so that when the windows of heaven are opened and the judgment of the flood comes on the earth, only those in the ark are saved. After the flood, God makes a covenant with all of the flesh that is on earth to never again destroy all life on earth and sets his bow in the sky as a sign, a visual reminder of that covenant. Now, while that destruction does not happen again on a global scale, the threat of God's judgment being poured out on all of the people with only a remnant being saved does occur again in the history of Israel. When God calls Israel out of Egypt and leads them by Mount Sinai, the people rebel. While Moses is up on the mountain receiving the laws and the instructions for building the tabernacle, the people demand that Aaron make for them a golden calf so that they can worship that instead. Now God says to Moses then, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I make, may make a great nation out of you, Moses only. But Moses, unlike Noah, intercedes. He implores God to remember the covenant he made with Abraham, and God relents. That is Israel's first encounter with God's wrath and judgment uh, for sin on their journey to the promised land. But the passage we just read shows that it clearly was not their last. And that raises an important question. How can a holy God dwell in the midst of a sinful, wicked, rebellious people? Well, the entire book of Leviticus is devoted to answering that question, and the answer God provides is the tabernacle, uh, a building, a tent of meeting, along with a system of worship that's designed by God and is to be constructed and performed exactly as he commands. So now we can understand the rebellion in front of us. First, we have to ask, who are the rebels? Now, there are four men mentioned here. Korah, who is uh, the ringleader of the group, and then Dathan, Abiram, and On. These are members of the tribe of Reuben. But Korah uh, is a son of Levi, a, a Levite, but more specifically, he's a son of Kohath. Uh, and you might remember that the Levites had a job. They were tasked with guarding and keeping the tabernacle, much like Adam was charged with guarding and keeping the Garden of Eden. Uh, but can you remember the job that was assigned to the sons of Kohath at the tabernacle? Think back <laughs> a few years, maybe. Uh, they were the tabernacle's stewarding rota. They were responsible for the setup and the tear down of the tabernacle as it was moving from place to place. But what specifically was their charge when it, the, what objects were they charged with setting up and tearing down? That's laid out for us in the book of Numbers in chapter four. When God tells Moses and Aaron, this is the service of Kohath and the tent of meeting. The most things. Now, Aaron and the priests were to cover up the furniture in the tabernacle, including the Ark of the Covenant itself, 
And then the Kohathites were sent in to carry the holy objects from one campsite to the next. Now, the Kohathites and the members that get brought into the rebellion, these are established, trusted members of the congregation of Israel. They have a privileged status in the service of God, yet they're not immune from discontentment. So why do they rebel? What's the charge? They level against Moses and Aaron. Look at verse 3 with me. You've gone too far. For all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Well, that sounds rather pious, doesn't it? Uh, it's complicated because Korah mixes truth with error here. Uh, and to be clear, we should focus on the error first. Korah claims that Moses, more specifically Aaron, as the priest, have exalted themselves above the rest of the congregation. Now, this would have been obviously untrue to everybody uh, at the time. Why? When the tabernacle was finished at the end of the book of Exodus, even Moses himself couldn't enter into it because of the cloud of God's glory that covered it. Aaron and his sons were then consecrated in a public ceremony recorded in Leviticus 8, and that ceremony is carried out painstakingly following the directions given to Moses on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 29. And then only after Aaron and his sons have done all that the Lord commanded by Moses can they enter the holy place of the tabernacle and offer a sacrifice that's accepted by God. So it's clearly untrue that Aaron exalted himself above the congregation. So Korah's objection would have been easier to dismiss if it were only that obvious untruth. But the truth mixed together with the lie is what made his appeal so dangerously enticing to the congregation. And that truth was that all in the congregation are holy. And we don't have to look very far from where we are tonight to see that that's true. Just a few verses ago at the end of Numbers chapter 15, the Lord commanded the people through Moses to wear tassels on the corners of their garments as a visual reminder so that when they look at their tassels, they would, quote, remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. All of the congregation are to remember to be holy to the Lord your God. Now, one commentator calls Korah the archetypal heretic. That's quite a title, isn't it? Archetypal heretic, because he uses a true premise to draw a false conclusion. He takes a general truth and then stretches it, twists it, and molds it until it supports a position that's contrary to the plain, clear, direct, specific words of God himself. Now, there's an element of that in the way that the serpent tempts Eve, right? But uh, today, in our contemporary context, we see this perhaps most often in professing Christians who say, I like to think of God as fill-in-the-blank, right? Uh, professing Christians who let what they think about God overrule what God has said about himself. Now, imagine 
for the sake of argument, that you were part of a church that hypothetically were to publish a document making the argument that there is, quote, a distinction between the written text of Scripture and the living word of God, the latter being associated with Jesus Christ, who speaks to us in our hearts and consciences. We owe our allegiance to Jesus Christ, the word made flesh, rather than adherence to the literal words of Scripture. And for that reason, if people believe that Jesus is now calling the church to a new understanding of fill-in-the-blank with whatever social issue you want, this should be taken seriously as a contemporary form of obedience. Now, if you find yourself in a church that even considers that position, it may be wise to follow the example given in this passage and separate yourselves from the midst of that congregation. But lest we think that the spirit of Korah is only out there. We ought to recognize the uncanny ability we have as Christians to use what we know about God's word and theology to get around the plain sense of scripture. Now, perhaps you might think to yourself, I know what Paul tells Titus to remind his congregation to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to show perfect courtesy to all people. But Jesus called the Pharisees mean names. Uh, and if Jesus can get away with calling them a brood of vipers, then surely I don't need to be gentle and courteous all of the time. Right? Surely I can take a bold stand for God's truth by making fun of somebody on Twitter for some quick Internet points. Right? They're so obviously wrong, after all. Or maybe you think to yourself, I know that Jesus said when you fast, don't look gloomy or disfigure your face so that your fasting is seen by others. Instead, wash your face so that your fasting is not seen by others, but by your Father who sees in secret. But I really want this different. I don't want to hide my light under a bushel. I want to speak powerfully against the spirit of the age to let everyone know just how much I'm giving up for God. So, surely I can mess up my face a bit, you know, to be seen by others. It's a sign of humility, after all, right? Now, what would be truly humble would be to recognize that the spirit of Korah grumbles inside of us, and instead to humbly submit to the clear words of God. Now, back to Korah. That was Korah's complaint. In response to Korah's complaint... Moses gives him exactly what he wants. Look at verses 6 and 7. Moses says, Do this. Take censers, Korah, and all his company. Put fire in them and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the Holy One. Now, if Korah were smart, the rebellion would have stopped immediately at this point. Why? Surely you can see the parallel here. This is exactly what happened with Nadab and Abihu back in Leviticus 10. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. What do you think is going to happen? What could Korah have possibly expected to happen when he and his men offered unauthorized fire before the Lord that he had not commanded? It's even worse than that, right? Because Nadab and Abihu 
were the sons of Aaron. They were the consecrated priests. Korah is not, and somehow he expects a better outcome for himself. So the day of the test comes. Korah and his men, they gather, they put their fire in the censers. And what is the scene? How, how are the people arrayed? Look at verses 18 and 19. Every man took his censer, put fire in them, and laid incense on them, and stood at the entrance of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. Then Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. So Korah and his men have gathered, but who is it that's assembled against Moses and Aaron and the Lord who appears at the entrance of the tabernacle? All of the congregation. They're not actively participating, but they are looking on with interest. Maybe they're thinking, you know, this core guy, he might be on to something. But God speaks to Moses and he says, separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. Same language as with the golden calf. Moses just as he did with the golden calf before, begs God for mercy. God responds by commanding Moses to the congregation to get away from the tents of the rebels, and they obey. Judgment comes swiftly and dramatically. The rebels in their tents, the rival tent where they've met together, they're swallowed by the earth. The rebels offering incense are consumed by the fire that comes out from before the Lord, exactly as expected. And then just as with Nadab and Abihu, there's a mess that needs to be cleaned up, cleaned up afterwards. So God commands Eleazar, one of Aaron's surviving sons, he was involved, uh, look back in Leviticus 10, you can see him there, to take the censers out of the blaze, scatter the fire, and then hammer the censers together into a covering for the altar. Why? For they offered them before the Lord. And they became holy. Thus, they shall be assigned to the people of Israel. So God gives his people here another visible sign to remember his work. Now, to envision this sign in our mind, you have to remember where the altar is. It's in the court of the tabernacle. In the midst uh, of this big empty space, the only thing in between the congregation and the curtain going into the holy place. So now, whenever the people look towards the holy place, they'll see this screen blocking path, reminding them that no one but Aaron's sons, the appointed, consecrated priests, can draw near to God in his holiness. And that's certainly not the first visual reminder we've encountered tonight, and I think it's really worth asking the question, what kind of visual reminders has God given to the church under the new covenant? Uh, you might immediately think of Jesus' own words when he institutes the Last Supper. Do this in remembrance of me. And it's true that baptism and the Lord's Supper are given, among other things, uh, to make believers visibly different from the rest of the world. But what is the New Testament reality that the temple and the tabernacle foreshadowed? It's us, believers, but specifically believers as we are built together by the Spirit. Paul tells the Ephesian church in uh, chapter 2, verses 19 to 21, that they are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation 
of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Uh, particularly relevant to the episode uh, in Numbers is what Paul tells the church in 1 Corinthians 3. Do you not know that you're God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, and Paul in this passage is specifically addressing those who cause division and controversy in the church, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Paul also says that Christians are temples themselves in the context of sexual relations in 1 Corinthians 6 and marriage in 2 Corinthians 6, both ways that Christian bodies are joined together. So if you want a visual reminder of the work of God's Spirit, just look around you at the people that God has joined together in this congregation. So just like the censors of Korah's rebels, God has made you holy, and he's hammering you together with one another, building you into his temple as a dwelling place for his spirit. But visual reminders are not sufficient for the Israelites here. Nadab and Abihu were not enough to remind Korah. Korah's censors were not enough to remind the rest of the people of Israel. We move on then to our second point, repetition. Now, in the soundtrack we're composing, you can imagine we've hit the repeat. We're back on to the second verse, which is in many ways the same as the first. How long do you think it took after this dramatic judgment we just saw? Uh, how much uh, peace do you think that bought the congregation before they started rebelling again? Uh, a year? A month? <laughs> no, that's too optimistic, right? Look at verse 41. On the next day. Oof. Now, who are the rebels this time? Do we have a ringleader, uh, clearly identified leaders? Well, look again. All the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron. Uh, what's their complaint? It's short, it's to the point. You have killed the people of the Lord. So not only do they refuse to see God's hand in this obviously divine judgment that happened just yesterday, they make Moses personally responsible. Even worse, they refer to the rebels as the people of the Lord, as if they're saying, you know, Korah was right. All in the congregation are holy, and you, Moses, are so judgmental, you've offended God by judging them. Now, that is a thinly veiled complaint against the righteous judgment of God himself. Uh, Now, this application, I'm going to say a phrase, a sentence. I want you to listen not just to what I say. More importantly, I want you to listen to your response to it. What's your first thought after I say this? So here, here goes. We know that the judgment of God falls rightly on those who practice such things. Okay. Maybe your first thought is, well, that's straight out of the book of Romans. I know that. Uh, and you're right. But maybe you thought, oof. I wish he hadn't said that. Maybe 
you winced a little bit, you looked over your shoulder, see who's listening. Maybe, if you're like me, (laughs) you worry about what kind of questions you might get if you were running for a prominent political office and you got this. But our responses to God's judgment can never be grumbling, can never be uh, embarrassment, avoidance. We can respond by mourning, as Moses commanded the congregation in Leviticus 10 to bewail the burning uh, the fire, the burning that the Lord has kindled because of Nadab and Abihu, but we can never grumble. This passage shows us clearly in a way we can't get around that God takes grumbling against his judgment deathly seriously. So at this point in the story, what do you think is going to happen next? Uh, what pattern did we see back uh, in the first rebellion? We saw the people rebel. They assembled against Moses and Aaron at the tent of meeting. Then God appears in a cloud of glory, tells Moses, separate the rebels uh, from the innocent. And then God acts in judgment, and the rebels are consumed. We've got the same pattern here in this second rebellion repeated Look at verse 42. The congregation had assembled against Moses and against Aaron at the tent of meeting. And then again in verse 42, the cloud covers it. The glory of the Lord appears before the congregation. Then we jump down to verse 44. The Lord spoke to Moses, get away from the midst of the congregation. Separate yourselves that I may consume them in a moment. Same phrase, same problem. Then in verse 46, the judgment has come. Wrath has gone out from before the Lord. The plague has begun. Now, if you'll permit me to quote one of our great modern poets, I think I've seen this film before, and I didn't like the ending. But what do we get instead of that expected ending? We get a plot twist, right? The trajectory of the story changes. Now, the best parts of Scripture for us are not the truths unchanged since the dawn of time. Those are good, but the best parts are the moments when bad news changes to good news. Like what we heard last Sunday evening, right? But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So our third point is the Picardy third, the unexpected resolution, the major chord. Not ruin but resolution. So Moses tells Aaron, take your censer, put fire on it from off the altar, and lay incense on it. This echoes the test uh, that was given to Korah and his men. Aaron does the very thing God has just showed that only Aaron can do. But what is Aaron supposed to do with the censer? What do you think Korah would have expected Aaron to do with the censer? Korah thought Aaron was exalting himself, above the congregation by drawing near to God in his glory. But where does Aaron go? Not towards the tent of meeting, not towards God in his glory, but into the midst of the congregation, towards God in his wrath. That's the opposite of exaltation, right? Korah, in his grumbling and his discontentment, had overlooked the purpose of priest's role, which is to make atonement. 
So how does Aaron do that? How does Aaron make atonement? Pay attention to the steps of the action, starting in verse 47. He takes his censer, he runs into the midst of the people, the plague's begun already. Only after he's in the midst of his, the people does he lay his sense, incense on the censer, and then he makes atonement. And what happens? He stands between the dead and the living. It's as if the plague is rushing towards him like this great wave of destruction. And as he lifts up his atoning offering, that wave is deflected like the waves of the flood dashing against the side of the ark. It's Aaron's atonement that separates the living from the dead. The people didn't separate themselves. Aaron separated them because of his atonement. All those who are covered by his sacrifice are saved. They don't separate themselves. They don't prepare themselves for it. Aaron acts on their behalf. You might be thinking, I'm using this word a lot, atonement. What is atonement? How do I define it? This is what atonement is. I could give you a definition, but it would just be repackaging and more conceptual, theological, rigorous, precise language, what we see depicted right here, which is God's appointed priest saving his people. So after the plague stops, Aaron returns to Moses at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And surely by this point, you can see the parallels between Aaron and who? The Lord Jesus Christ, right? Jesus was sent from the glory at his father's side to rush into the midst of his own people who did not receive him, a rebellious people, dying, diseased. And what does he do? He makes atonement for them. Then he returns to the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, the true tent of meeting, as Hebrews tells us, that the Lord set up not man. So I want to conclude tonight by looking at three much, much briefer points, three ways in which Jesus is a greater fulfillment of Aaron in this passage. So first, Jesus is a greater priest than Aaron. The author of the book of Hebrews anticipates Korah's objection when he says, speaking of the role of the high priest, no one takes this honor for himself. But only when called by God, just as Aaron was, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. If that sounds familiar, it's because we just sung it. Jesus' priesthood is better than Aaron's because he's without sin, unlike Aaron, who made that golden calf in the first place. His priesthood is given on the basis of what the author of Hebrews calls an indestructible life. He's a priest forever, and his priesthood is founded not just on God's commandment, but on God's own oath. The Lord has sworn, and he will not change his mind. Secondly, then, Jesus offers a greater sacrifice than Aaron. Paul says in Ephesians 5, 2, Christ loved us and gave, what? Himself 
up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. When Jesus is on the cross and he calls out with a loud voice, what does he say? Into your hands I commit my incense, my censer. No, it's into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathes his last. So the same breath that God put into the first Adam to make him a living spirit, the second Adam offers back to his father. Finally, Jesus secures a greater salvation than Aaron. Aaron's sacrifice in this passage only averted, turned aside one of the judgments, but Jesus reverses all three in his work. So first, Jesus saves those who are consumed by sickness. That's a feature of his earthly ministry. Jesus heals the sick time and time again. In one case, he heals a sick woman who touches the fringe of his garment. Those are the same fringes that are described in Numbers chapter 15 as visual reminders of the people's holiness. Now, second, think about the rebels who were consumed by fire. When Jesus completes his atonement, returns to his father's side and the tabernacle made without hands, the heavenly places, he sends out God's spirit, which descends as tongues of flames and comes to rest on his disciples, and they are not consumed. Instead, they're empowered to go out and to preach the gospel. And then thirdly, the people who are swallowed by the earth. Jesus himself was swallowed by the earth, sealed in a tomb. But just as Aaron was vindicated by the effectiveness of his offering, Jesus, as Paul says in the opening of the book of Romans, was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Christ himself is the first fruits of a great resurrection harvest. The second Adam, like the first, is given the work of a gardener, but we are the seeds that he plants in the earth. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. So now you might be saying to yourself, I want that great salvation. I need that great salvation. How can that great salvation be mine? And we've already sung the answer to that in Psalm 32. The guilt of our sin under the hand of a holy God, it's like a plague. It's a disease that saps our strength. It wears out our bones with groaning. And yet, God is our refuge, our hiding place, our true security. So how do we move from sickness under God to security with God? Psalm 32 tells us we confess our sins and God forgives and pardons us because of Christ's atoning sacrifice. That resolution can't be earned by the sincerity of our confession, can't be anticipated by the guilt we feel for our sins. Could my zeal, no respite, no, 
could my tears forever flow. All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. So, pray to God while he may be found. Surely when waves are sweeping past, mighty waters rising fast, he'll keep you safe and sound. While the tempest still is high, storms about us, night overtakes us, he, our high priest, hears our cry. Hallelujah. What a savior. Let's cry out to him now in prayer. Lord God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, thank you for Jesus. We are a congregation of rebels, forgetful, prone to wander. Even after considering this play of your power and glory and judgment tonight in number 16, we know that on the very next day, we'll be grumbling against you, ignoring your direction in our lives, creating divisions in your holy temple, the church. Thank you for giving us a high priest who humbled himself to make atonement for us, who was offered once for all for every sin we've committed, every sin we will commit, and who shares with us the indestructible life that you have promised to him. Thank you for making us holy by his sacrifice so that we can then go on and in turn offer our own bodies as living sacrifices that are acceptable in your sight. May the breath with which we sing your praises now be a fragrant offering to you, God our Father. Amen.